From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Saturday afternoon session of the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session is provided by a family choir comprised of members from stakes in Tremonton, Garland, and Fielding, Utah. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Henry B. Eyring, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Saturday afternoon session of the 187th Annual Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Thomas S. Monson has asked that I conduct this session. We extend our greetings to all who are in attendance or who are participating by means of television, radio, or the Internet. We likewise welcome those who are viewing the proceedings in stake centers in various parts of the world where the conference is being carried by satellite transmission. The music for this session will be provided by a family choir composed of members from stakes in Tremont, Garland, and Fielding, Utah, under the direction of Jessica Lee Gilbert with Bonnie Goodliff at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing, Home Can Be a Heaven on Earth. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Vaughn G. Keach of the Seventy.
Our Father in heaven, we bow our heads today in gratitude. We are grateful for thy Son, for his ministry and teachings, and for his resurrection and his atonement. We are so grateful to have a prophet among us, Father, President Thomas S. Monson. Please bless him today and strengthen him. We're grateful for the words that we have already heard in this conference and for the words that we will hear. We ask Thee to help us open our hearts and to understand and then to act upon that understanding. Please bless us especially to reach out more in Christ-like service and love and to serve those around us more as Thy Son has served us so well. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, second counselor in the First Presidency, will now present the general officers and Area 70s of the Church for a sustaining vote, after which Kevin R. Jurgensen, managing director of the Church Auditing Department will read the annual report. He will be followed by Brooke P. Hales, Secretary to the First Presidency, who will present the statistical report of the Church for the year 2016. My dear brothers and sisters, President Monson has asked that I now present to you the General Authorities, Area 70s, and General Auxiliary Presidencies of the Church for your sustaining vote. It is proposed that we sustain Thomas Spencer Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Henry Benyon Eyring as First Counselor in the First Presidency, and Dieter Friedrich Uchtdorf as Second Counselor in the First Presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed, if any, may manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain Russell M. Nelson as President of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the following as members of that Quorum. Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, M. Russell Ballard, Robert D. Hales, Jeffrey R. Holland, David A. Bednar, Quinton L. Cook, D. Todd Christofferson, Neil L. Anderson, Ronald A. Raspand, Gary E. Stevenson, and Dale G. Renland. Those in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so indicate. It is proposed that we sustain the counselors in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. All in favor, please manifest it. Contrary, if there be any, by the same sign. We gratefully acknowledge the service of Elder Bruce D. Porter, our friend and associate who passed away December 28, 2016. We express our love and heartfelt condolences 
to sisters Susan Porter and to their children and grandchildren. We are thankful to have served with this good man. It is proposed that we release Taylor G. Godoy and John C. Pingree, Jr. as Area 70s. Those who wish to express appreciation to these brethren for their service, please so indicate. It is proposed that we release with heartfelt gratitude Sister Linda K. Burden, Carol M. Stevens, and Linda S. Reeves as the Relief Society General Presidency. We likewise extend releases to members of the Relief Society General Board. All who wish to join us in expressing appreciation to these sisters for their remarkable service and devotion, please manifest it. It is proposed that we release Sister Jean B. Bingham as First Counselor in the Primary General Presidency and Sister Bonnie H. Corden as Second Counselor in the Primary General Presidency. Those who wish to extend appreciation to these sisters may do so by the uplifted hand. It is proposed that we sustain the following as new General Authority 70s. Taylor G. Godoy, Sony L. Koch, Adulson de Paula Parheya, John C. Pingree, Brian K. Taylor, and Taniela B. Vaccolo. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, by the same sign. It is proposed that we sustain Jean B. Bingham to serve as Relief Society General President with Sharon L. Eubank as First Counselor and Reina E. Abuto as Second Counselor. It is further proposed that we sustain Bonnie H. Corden to now serve as First Counselor in the Primary General Presidency and Christina B. Franco to serve as second counselor in the primary general presidency. All in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so indicate. It is proposed that we sustain the following as new area 70s. Louise R. Arbisu, David A. Benalcazar, Byrne S. Broadbent, David L. Buckner, L. Todd Butch, Luciano Cascargi, Ting Jung Chang, Pablo H. Chavez, Raymond A. Cutler, Fernando P. Del Carpio, Jose Luis Del Guerzo, Alexandre A. Trakyov, E. Raymond Ekbo, Carlos R. Fusco, Jr., Jorge R. Garcia, Gary F. Gessel, Guillermo E. Guardia, Marcel Gay, Jose Hernandez, Carl D. Hurst, Ren S. Johnson, J. B. Jones, Anthony M. Kaku, Paul N. 
Lechias, John A. McCune, Thomas S. Merdegia, Arthur J. Miranda, Eli K. Monga, Juan C. Pozo, Anthony Quasi, James R. Raspent, Carlos G. Revillo, Jr., Martin C. Rios, Johnny F. Ruiz, K. Roy Tunnicliffe, Moises Villanueva. Those in favor may manifest it. Any opposed may so signify. It is proposed that we sustain the other General Authorities, Area 70s, and General Auxiliary Presidency as presently constituted. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, if any. The voting has been noted. Those who may have opposed any of the proposals should contact their stake presidents. My dear brothers and sisters, thank you for your continued faith and prayers in behalf of the leaders of the Church. We now invite the new General Authority 70s and the new Relief Society General Presidency to take their seats on the rostrum. President Monson always says it's a long walk. (laughs) Thank you, sisters. Thank you, brethren. As a matter of information, uh, Sister Franco is uh, currently serving as um, a mission with her husband in Argentina. She was just sustained, as you know, and uh, will officially begin her service upon their return in uh, July. As announced, uh, Kevin R. Jurgensen will read the Church Audit Report, followed by Brooke P. Hales, who will present the statistical report of the Church for 2016. Thank you. To the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, dear brethren, As directed by Revelation in section 120 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Council on the Disposition of the Tithes, composed of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the Presiding Bishopric, authorizes the expenditure of Church funds. Church entities disperse funds in accordance with approved budgets, policies, and procedures. The Church Auditing Department, which consists of credentialed professionals and is independent of all other Church departments, has responsibility to perform audits for the purpose of providing reasonable assurance regarding contributions received, expenditures made, and safeguarding of Church assets. Based upon audits performed, the Church Auditing Department is of the opinion that in all material respects contributions received, expenditures made, and assets of the Church for the year 2016 have been recorded and administered in accordance with approved Church budgets, policies, and accounting practices. The Church follows the practices taught to its members of living within a budget, avoiding debt, and saving against the time of need. Respectfully submitted, Church Auditing Department, Kevin R. Jurgensen, Managing Director.
The First Presidency has issued the following statistics concerning the status of the Church as of December 31, 2016. The total number of stakes at the end of the year was 3,266, with 421 missions, 556 districts, and 30,304 wards and branches. Total Church membership was 15,882,417. The number of new children of record added during 2016 was 109,246, with 240,131 converts baptized during the year. As of December 31, there were 70,946 full-time missionaries and 33,695 Church service missionaries serving throughout the world. Six temples were dedicated in 2016—the Provo City Center, Sapporo, Japan, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Fort Collins, Colorado, Star Valley, Wyoming, and Hartford, Connecticut temples. Two temples were rededicated in 2016—the Suva Fiji and the Freiburg, Germany temples. The number of temples in operation at the end of the year was 155. Thank you, brethren. The choir will now favor us with a medley of I am a child of God, and how will they know? Following the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Elders Robert D. Hales and Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles.
What does it mean to be a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ? A disciple is one who has been baptized and is willing to take upon him or her the name of the Savior and follow him. A disciple strives to become as he is by keeping his commandments in mortality, much the same as an apprentice seeks to become like his master. Many people hear the word disciple and think it means only follower. But genuine discipleship is a state of being. This suggests more than studying and applying a list of individual attributes. Disciples live so that the characteristics of Christ are woven into the fiber of their beings as into a spiritual tapestry. Listen to Apostle Peter's invitation to become a disciple of the Savior. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. As you can see, weaving the spiritual tapestry of personal discipleship requires more than a single thread. In the Savior's day, there were many who claimed to be righteous in one or another aspect of their lives. They practiced what I have called selective obedience. For example, they kept the commandment to refrain from work on the Sabbath, yet criticized the Savior for healing on that holy day. They gave alms to the poor, but only offered their excess, what they did not need for themselves. They fasted, but only with long faces. They prayed, but only to be seen of men. Jesus said, They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Such men and women may focus on mastering a specific attribute or action, but do not necessarily become as he is in their hearts. Of this Jesus declared, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The attributes of the Savior, as we perceive them, are not a script to be followed or a list to be checked off. They are interwoven characteristics added one to another, which develop in us in interactive ways. In other words, we can obtain one Christ-like characteristic without also obtaining and influence others. As one characteristic becomes strong, so do many more. In Second Peter and in Doctrine and Covenants, section 4, we learn that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation. We measure our faith by what it leads us to do by our obedience. If ye will have faith in me, the Lord promised, 
he shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. End of quote. Faith is a catalyst. Without works, without virtuous living, our faith is, faith is without power to activate discipleship. Indeed, faith is dead. So Peter explains, add to your faith virtue. This virtue is more than sexual purity. It is a cleanliness and holiness in mind and body. Virtue is also a power. As we faithfully live the gospel, we will have power to be virtuous in every thought, feeling, and action. Our minds become more receptive to the promptings of the Holy Ghost and the light of Christ. We embody Christ not only in what we say and do, but in who we are. Peter continues, Add to your virtue knowledge. As we live virtuous lives, we come to know our Heavenly Father and His Son in a special way. If any man will do the Father's will, he shall know of the doctrine. This knowledge is personal testimony, born from personal experience. It is a knowledge that transforms us, so that our light cleaveth under his light, and our virtue loveth his virtue. By our virtuous living, we make the journey from I believe to the glorious destination of I know. Peter exhorts us to add to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience. As temperate disciples, we live the gospel in a balanced and steady way. We do not run faster than we have strength. Day by day, we move forward, undeterred by the, un- by the refining challenges of mortality. Being tempered in this way, we develop patience and trust in the Lord. We are able to rely on His design for our lives, even though we cannot see it with our own natural eyes. Therefore, we can be still and know that He is God. When faced with the storms of tribulation, we ask, What wouldst thou have me learn from this experience? With His plan and purposes in our hearts, we move forward, not enduring all things, but enduring them patiently and well. This patience, Peter teaches, leads us to godliness. As the Father is patient with us, His children, we become patient with one another and ourselves. We delight in the agency of others and the opportunity it gives them to grow, line upon line, brighter and brighter until the perfect day. From the temperance to patience and from patience to godliness, our natures change. We gain brotherly kindness that is a hallmark of all true disciples. Good Samaritan, like the Good Samaritan, we cross the road to minister to whomever is in need, even if they are not within our circle of friends. We bless them that curse us. We do good to those who despitefully use us. In any attribute, is any attribute more godly or Christ-like? I testify that the efforts we make to become disciples of our Savior 
are truly added upon until we are possessed of his love. This love is a defining characteristic of a disciple of Christ, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. It is faith, hope, and charity that qualify us for the work of God. And now abideth these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Brothers and sisters, now more than ever, we cannot be part-time disciples. We cannot be a disciple on just one point or doctrine or another. The constellation of characteristics that result from faith in Christ, including the ones we have talked about today, are all necessary to our standing strong in these last days. As we earnestly strive to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, these characteristics will be interwoven, added upon, and interactively strengthened in us. There will be no disparity between the kindness we show our enemies and the kindness we bestow on our friends. We will be as honest when one is looking at us and when others are watching. We will be as devoted to God in public square as we are in our private closet. I testify that everyone can be a disciple of the Savior. Discipleship is not constrained by age, gender, ethnic origin, or calling. Through our individual discipleship, we as Latter-day Saints build up a collective strength to bless our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Now is the time to recommit ourselves to being His disciples with all diligence. Brothers and sisters, we are all called to be disciples of our Savior. Let this conference be your opportunity to begin as in times of old and come unto Him with all your heart. This is His Church. I bear my special testimony that He lives. May He bless us in our eternal quest to become devoted and valiant disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Surely, it must have been a day like we're having in Salt Lake City today that led Elizabeth Hewitt to say and write more than a century ago, There is sunshine in my soul today, more glorious and bright than glows in any earthly sky, for Jesus is my light. With radiance in every note of that marvelous old Christian hymn, it's virtually impossible to sing it without smiling. But today I wish to lift out of context just one line 
from that hymn that may help us on days when we find it hard to sing or smile and peaceful, happy moments do not seem to roll. If for a time you are unable to echo the joyous melodies you hear coming from others, I ask you to hold tenaciously to the line in this hymn that reassures Jesus listening can hear the songs you cannot sing. Among the realities we face as children of God living in a fallen world is that some days are difficult, days when our faith and our fortitude are tested. These challenges may come from a lack in us, a lack in others, or just a lack in life. But whatever the reasons, we find they can rob us of songs we so much want to sing and darken the promise of springtime in the soul that Eliza Hewitt celebrates in one of her verses. So, what do we do in such times? For one thing, we embrace the Apostle Paul's counsel and hope for that which we see not and with patience wait for it. In those moments when the melody of joy falters below our power of expression, we may have to stand silent for a time and simply listen to others, drawing strength from the splendor of the music around us. Many of us who are musically challenged have had our confidence bolstered and our singing markedly improved by positioning ourselves next to someone with a stronger, more certain voice. Surely it follows that in singing the anthems of eternity, we should stand as close as humanly possible to the Savior and Redeemer of the world, who has absolutely perfect pitch. We then take courage from his ability to hear our silence, and we take hope from his melodious messianic intercession in our behalf. Truly, it is when the Lord is near that the dove of peace sings in my heart and the flowers of grace appear. On those days when we feel a little out of tune, a little less than what we think we see or hear in others, I would ask us, especially the youth of the Church, to remember it is by divine design that not all the voices in God's choir are the same. It takes variety—sopranos and altos, baritones and basses—to make rich music, to borrow a line from the cheery correspondence of two remarkable Latter-day Saint women. All God's critters got a place in the choir. When we disparage our uniqueness or try to conform to fictitious stereotypes, stereotypes driven by an insatiable consumer culture and idealized beyond any possible realization by social media, then we lose the richness of tone and timber that God intended when he created a world of diversity. Now, this is not to say 
that everyone in this divine chorus can simply start shouting his or her own personal oratorio. Diversity is not cacophony, and choirs do require discipline. For our purpose today, Elder Hales, I would say discipleship. But once we've accepted divinely revealed lyrics and harmonious orchestration composed before the world was, then our Heavenly Father delights to have us sing in our own voice, not someone else's. Believe in yourself and believe in Him. Don't demean your worth or denigrate your contribution. Above all, don't abandon your role in the chorus. Why? Because you're unique. You're irreplaceable. The loss of even one voice diminishes every other singer in this great mortal choir of ours, including the loss of those who feel they are on the margins, the margins of society or the margins of the Church. But even as I encourage all of you to have faith regarding songs that may be difficult to sing, I readily acknowledge that for different reasons I struggle with other kinds of songs that should be but are not yet sung. When I see the staggering economic inequality in the world, I feel guilty singing with Mrs. Hewitt of blessings which God gives me now for joys laid up above. That chorus cannot be fully, faithfully sung until we have honorably cared for the poor. Economic deprivation is a curse that keeps on cursing year after year and generation after generation. It damages bodies, maims spirits, harms families, and destroys dreams. If we could do more to alleviate poverty, as Jesus repeatedly commands us to do, maybe some of the less fortunate in the world could hum a few notes of there is sunshine in my soul today, perhaps for the first time in their lives. I also find it hard to sing sunny, bouncy lyrics when so many around us suffer from mental and emotional illness or other debilitating health limitations. Unfortunately, these burdens sometimes persist despite the valiant efforts of many kinds of caregivers and family members. I pray we will not let these children of God suffer in silence and that we'll be endowed with the capacity to hear the songs they cannot now sing. And someday, I hope a great global chorus will harmonize across all racial and ethnic lines, declaring that guns and slurs and vitriol are not the way to deal with human conflict. The declarations of heaven cry out to us that the only way complex societal issues can ever be satisfactorily resolved is by loving God and keeping His commandments, thus opening the door to the one lasting salvific way to love each other as neighbors. The prophet Ether taught that we should hope for a better world. 
reading that thought a thousand years later, war and violence-weary Moroni declared that the more excellent way to that world will always be the gospel of Jesus Christ. How grateful we are that in the midst of these kinds of challenges, there comes from time to time another kind of song that we find ourselves unable to sing, but for a different reason. This is when feelings are so deep and personal, even so sacred, that they either cannot be or should not be expressed. Like Cordelia's love for her father, of which she said, My love is richer than my tongue. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Coming to us as something holy, these sentiments are simply unutterable, spiritually ineffable. Like the prayer Jesus offered for the Nephite children, those who were witnesses to that event recorded, I hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard, so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. No tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of men conceive so great and marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak. These kinds of sanctified moments remain unuttered because expression, even if it were possible, might seem like desecration. Brothers and sisters, we live in a mortal world with many songs we cannot or do not yet sing. But I plead with each one of us to stay permanently and faithfully in the choir, where we will be able to savor forever that most precious anthem of all, the song of redeeming love. Fortunately, the seats for this particular number are limitless. There is room for those who speak different languages, celebrate diverse cultures, and live in a host of locations. There's room for the single, the married, for large families, and for the childless. There is room for those who once had questions regarding their faith and room for those who still do. There is room for those with differing sexual attractions. In short, there is a place for everyone who loves God and honors His commandments as the inviolable measuring rod for personal behavior. For if love of God is the melody of our shared song, surely our common quest to obey Him is the indispensable harmony in it. With divine imperatives of love and faith, repentance and compassion, honesty and forgiveness, there is room in this choir for all who wish to be there. Come as you are, a loving Father says to each of us, but he adds, don't plan to stay as you are. We smile and remember that God is determined to make of us more than we thought we could be. 
in this great oratorio that is his plan for our exaltation, may we humbly follow his baton and keep working on the songs we cannot sing until we can offer those carols to our King. And then one day, as our much-loved hymn says, we will sing and we'll shout with the armies of heaven. Hosanna! Hosanna to God and the Lamb as Jesus descends with his chariot of fire. I testify that hour will come, that God, our eternal Father, will again send to this earth his only begotten Son, this time to rule and reign as King of kings forever. I testify that this is his restored Church and is the vehicle for bringing the teachings and saving ordinances of the gospel to all humankind. When his message has penetrated every continent and visited every clime, Jesus will indeed show his smiling face, and there will be plenty of eternal sunshine for the soul that day. For this promised hour to come, I longingly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The congregation will now join the choir in singing, Go Forth with Faith. After the singing, we will hear from Elders Gary B. Sabin and Valerie V. Cordon of the Seventy. They will be followed by Elder Neil L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. This is the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're listening to the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.
Several years ago, our young granddaughter ran up to me and excitedly announced, Grandpa, Grandpa, I scored all three goals at my soccer game today. I enthusiastically replied, That's great, Sarah. Her mother then looked at me with a twinkle in her eye and said, The score was two to one. (laughs) I didn't dare ask who would won. Conference is a time of reflection, revelation, and sometimes redirection. There was a car rental company with a GPS system called Never Lost. If you make a wrong turn once you put in your desired destination, the guiding voice does not say, You fool, but rather, in a very pleasant voice, says, Recalculating route. When possible, make a legal U turn. <laughs> in Ezekiel, we read this wonderful promise. If the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. What a fabulous promise! But it requires two alls to receive the promise of the third. Turn from all, keep all, then all is forgiven. This requires being all in. We should not be like the man who, as the Wall Street Journal reported, sent an envelope filled with cash along with an anonymous letter to the Internal Revenue Service, which said, Dear IRS, enclosed please find money I owe for past taxes. P.S. If after this my conscience still bothers me, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) That's not how we do it. We don't hold back to see what the minimum is we can get by with. The Lord requires the heart and a willing mind, our whole heart. When we are baptized, we are fully immersed as a symbol of our promise to fully follow the Savior, not half-heartedly. When we are fully committed and all-in, heaven shakes for our good. When we are lukewarm or only partially committed, we lose out on some of heaven's choicest blessings. Many years ago, I took the scouts on a camp out in the desert. The boys slept by a large fire they had made, and like every good scout leader, I slept in the back of my truck. In the morning, when I sat up and looked at the campsite, I saw one scout whom I will call Paul, who looked particularly rough around the edges. I asked how he had slept, and he replied, Not very well. When I asked why, he said, I was cold. The fire went out. I said, Well, fires do that. Wasn't your sleeping bag warm enough? No answer. Then one of the other scouts loudly volunteered, He didn't use his sleeping bag. I asked in disbelief, Why not, Paul? Silence. Then finally the sheepish reply, Well, I thought if I didn't unroll my sleeping bag, I wouldn't have to roll it up again. (laughs) True story. He froze for hours because he was trying to save five minutes of work. We may think, how foolish. Who would ever do that? Well, we do it all the time in much more dangerous ways. We are, in effect, refusing to unroll our spiritual sleeping bags when we don't take the time to sincerely pray, study, and earnestly live the gospel each day. Not only will the fire go out, but we will be unprotected and grow spiritually cold. When we are complacent with our covenants, we are complicit with the consequences. The Lord has counseled us to beware concerning yourselves, to give diligent heed to the words of eternal life. And He further declared, My blood shall not cleanse them if they hear me not. In reality, it is much easier to be all in than partially in. When we are partially in or not in at all, there is in the Star Wars vernacular a disturbance in the Force. 
we're out of sync with God's will and therefore out of sync with the nature of happiness. Isaiah said, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Fortunately, no matter where we are or where we have been, we are not beyond the reach of the Savior who said, Therefore, whoso repenteth and cometh to me as a little child, him will I receive, for of such is the kingdom of God. Behold, for such I have laid down my life and have taken it up again. As we continually repent and rely upon the Lord, we gain strength as we come full circle in possessing the humility and faith of a little child, but enriched with the wisdom born from a life of experience. Job proclaimed, The righteous shall also hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. It was Tennyson who wrote, My strength is as the strength of ten, because my heart is pure. The Lord has counseled, Stand ye in holy places, and be not moved. Our son Justin passed away at age 19 after fighting a lifelong disease. In a sacrament meeting talk he gave not long before he left us, he shared a story that must have resonated with him about a father and his young son who went into a toy store where there was an inflatable punching bag in the shape of a man. The boy punched the inflatable man who tipped over and immediately bounced back after every punch. The father asked his young son why the man kept bouncing back up. The boy thought for a minute and they said, then said, I don't know. I guess it's because he's standing up on the inside. In order to be all in, we need to stand up inside, come what may. We stand up inside when we wait patiently upon the Lord to remove or give us strength to endure our thorns in the flesh. Such thorns may be disease, disability, mental illness, death of a loved one, and so many other issues. We stand up inside when we lift up the hands that hang down. We stand up inside when we defend the truth against a wicked and secular world that is becoming increasingly more uncomfortable with light, calling evil good and good evil, and condemning the righteous because of their righteousness. Standing up inside in spite of difficulties is possible because of a clear conscience, the strengthening and comforting assurance from the Holy Ghost, and an eternal perspective which surpasses mortal understanding. In our pre-mortal life, we shouted for joy at the opportunity to experience mortality. We were all in as we excitedly made the decision to be valiant defenders of our Heavenly Father's plan. It is time to stand up and defend His plan again. My 97-year-old father recently passed away. Whenever someone asked him how he was doing, his consistent reply was, Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm about a 25. Even when this dear man could no longer stand or even sit and had great difficulty speaking, his answer was still the same. He was always standing up inside. When my dad was 90, we were in an airport, and I asked him if I could get him a wheelchair. He said, No, Gary, maybe when I get old. And then he added, Besides, if I get tired of walking, I can always run. If we're not able to be all in the way we are presently walking, then maybe we need to run. Maybe we need to recalculate our route. We might even need to make a U-turn. We might need to study more intently, pray more earnestly, or just let some things go so we can hang on to those things that really matter. We may need to let go of the world so we can hang on to eternity. My father understood this. When he was in the Navy during World War II, there were those in the great and spacious building who made fun of his principles. 
But two of his shipmates, Dale Maddox and Don Davidson, took note and did not. They asked Saban, Why are you so different from everyone else? You have high morals and don't drink, smoke, or swear, but you seem calm and happy. Their positive impression of my father did not match what they had been taught about the Mormons, and my father was able to teach and baptize both shipmates. After the war ended, Heber J. Grant called for missionaries, including some married men. Dale and his wife, Mary Ollie, decided Dale should serve, even though they were expecting their first child. The same Mary Ollie Dale's parents said he would lose if he joined the Church. They eventually had nine children, three boys and six girls. All nine served missions, followed by Dale and Mary Olive, who served three missions of their own. Dozens of grandchildren have also served. Two of their sons, John and Matthew Maddox, are currently members of the Tabernacle Choir, as is Matthew's son-in-law, Ryan. The Maddox family, now numbers 144, are great examples of being all-in. In going through my dad's papers, we came across a letter from Jennifer Richards, one of the five daughters of the other shipmate, Don Davidson. She wrote, Your righteousness changed our lives. It is hard to comprehend what our lives would be like without the Church. My dad died loving the gospel and trying to live it to the end. It is hard to measure the impact for good each individual can have by standing up inside. My father and his two shipmates refused to listen to those in the great and spacious building who were pointing this finger of scorn. They knew that it is far better to follow the Creator than the crowd. The Apostle Paul could have been describing our day when he told Timothy that some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. There is a lot of vain jangling going on in the world today. It is the conversation of those in the great and spacious building. Often it appears as a form of rationalization to justify wickedness or manifests itself when people lose their way and accelerate. It sometimes comes from those who have not paid the price to be all in and prefer to follow the natural man as opposed to the prophet. Gratefully, we know how it ends for the faithful. When we are all in, we have the all-encompassing assurance that all things work together for good to them that love God. As Neil Maxwell said, Don't fear, just live right. My father-in-law taught at BYU and loved BYU football, but could not bring himself to watch their games because he was so nervous about the outcome. Then a wonderful thing happened. The VCR was invented, which made it possible for him to record the games. If BYU won, he would watch the recording with perfect confidence, (laughs) absolutely certain of the ending. If they were penalized unfairly, injured, or behind late in the fourth quarter, he wasn't stressed because he knew they would pull it out. You might say he had a perfect brightness of hope. (laughs) So it is with us. As we are faithful, we can have equal certainty that things will work out well for us in the end. The Lord's promises are sure. This does not mean it will be easy or without many tears. But as Paul wrote, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that love Him. I bear you my witness that our Father lives, and Jesus is the Christ, and of the great plan of happiness. I pray that we will be all in, that we will recalculate our route if need be, that we will stand up inside. I pray the Lord's choice is blessing to be with you. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. After being called as a general authority, 
I moved with my family from Costa Rica to Salt Lake City for my first assignment. Here in the United States, I have been blessed to visit wonderful people of different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, and cultures. Among them are many who, like me, were born in the countries of Latin America. I have noticed that many of the first-generation Hispanics here speak Spanish as their primary language and enough English to communicate with others. The second generation, who were either born in the United States or came at an early age and attend school here, speak very good English and perhaps some broken Spanish. And of them, by the third generation, Spanish, the native language of their ancestors, is lost. In linguistic terms, this is simply called language loss. Language loss may happen when families move to a foreign land where the native language is not predominant. It happens not only among Hispanics, but also among populations throughout the world where a native language is replaced in favor of a new one. Even Nephi, a prophet in the Book of Mormon, was concerned about losing the native language of his fathers when he was preparing to move to the Promised Land. Nephi writes, Behold, it is wisdom in God that we should obtain these records, that we may preserve unto our children the language of our fathers. But Nephi was also concerned about losing another kind of language. In the next verse, he continues, And also that we may preserve unto them the words which have been spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets, which had been delivered unto them by the Spirit and the power of God, since the world began even down unto this present time. I noticed a similarity between preserving the mother tongue and preserving the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Today, in my analogy, I would like to emphasize not any particular earthly language, but rather an eternal language that must be preserved in our families and never lost. I speak of the language of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By language of the gospel, I mean all the teachings of our prophets, our obedience to those teachings, and our following righteous traditions. I will discuss three ways that this language can be preserved. First, being more diligent and concerned at home. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord invited many prominent members of the Church, including Newell K. Whitney, to set their homes in order. The Lord said, My servant Newell K. Whitney hath need to be chastened and set in order his family and see that they are more diligent and concerned at home. And pray always, or they shall be removed out of their place. One factor that influences language loss is when parents don't spend time teaching their children their native language. It is not enough to merely speak the language in the home. If parents desire to preserve the language, it must be taught. Research has found that parents who make a conscious effort to preserve the native language tend to, to, to succeed in doing so. So what will be a conscious effort to preserve the language of the gospel? Elder David A. Bednar 
of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles cautioned that weak gospel teaching and modeling in the home is a powerful cause that may break the cycle of multi-generational families in the Church. We can therefore conclude that powerful teaching is extremely important to preserve the gospel in our families, and it requires diligence and effort. We have been invited many times to acquire the practice of daily family and personal scripture study. Many families that are doing this are blessed each day with greater unity and a closer relationship with the Lord. When will daily scripture study happen? It will happen when parents take the scriptures in hand and with love invite the family to gather together to study. It is difficult to see this study happening in any other way. Fathers and mothers, don't miss out on these great blessings. Don't wait until it's too late. Second, strong modeling in the home. One linguistics expert wrote that to preserve a native language, you need to bring the language alive for your children. We bring the language alive when our teaching and modeling work together. When I was young, I worked in my father's factory during vacation. The first question my father always asked after I received my salary was, what are you going to do with your money? I knew the answer and responded, pay my tithing and save for my mission. After working with him for about eight years and constantly answering his same question, my father figured he had taught me about paying my tithing. What he didn't realize was that I had learned this important principle in just one weekend. Let me tell you how I learned that principle. After some events related to a civil war in Central America, my father's business went bankrupt. He went from about 200 full-time employees to fewer than five sewing operators who worked as needed in the garage of our home. One day, during those difficult times, I heard my parents discussing whether they should pay tithing or buy food for the children. On Sunday, I followed my father to see what he was going to do. After our church meetings, I saw him take an envelope and put his tithing in it. That was only part of the lesson. The question that remained for me was what we were going to eat. <laughs> Early Monday morning, some people knocked on our door. When, open it, when I opened it, they asked for my father. I called for him, and when he arrived, the visitors told him about, about an urgent sewing order they needed as quickly as possible. They told him that the order was so urgent that they would pay for it in advance. That day, I learned the principles of pain tithing and the blessings that follow. In the New Testament, the Lord talks about modeling. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, this also doeth the Son likewise.
It is not enough just to talk to our children about the importance of temple marriage, fasting, and keeping the Sabbath day holy. They must see us making room in our schedules to attend the temple as frequently as we can. They need to see our commitment to fasting regularly and keeping the entire Sabbath day holy. If our youth cannot fast two meals, cannot study the scriptures regularly, and cannot turn off a TV during a big game on Sunday, will they have the spiritual self-discipline to resist the powerful temptations of today's challenging world, including the temptation of pornography? Third, traditions. Another way language can be altered or lost is when other languages and traditions are mixed with a mother tongue. In the early years of the restored church, the Lord invited many prominent members of the church to set their homes in order. He began his invitation by addressing two ways we may lose light and truth from our homes. That wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth. Through disobedience from the children of men, and because of the tradition of their fathers. As families, we need to avoid any tradition that will prevent us from keeping the Sabbath day holy or having daily scripture study and prayer at home. We need to close the digital doors of our home to pornography and all other evil influences. To combat the worldly traditions of our day, we need to use the scriptures and the voice of our modern prophets to teach our children about their divine identity, their purpose in life, and the divine mission of Jesus Christ. In the scriptures, we find several examples of language loss. For example, now it came to pass that there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time he spake unto his people, and they did not believe the tradition of their fathers. And now, because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. For the rising generation, the gospel became a strange language. And while the benefit of maintaining a native language are sometimes debated, in the context of the plan of salvation, there is no debate about the eternal consequences of losing the language of the gospel in our homes. As children of God, we are imperfect people trying to learn a perfect language. Just as a mother is compassionate with her little children, our Heavenly Father is patient with our imperfections and mistakes. He treasures and understands our feebless utterances, mumble insincerity, as if they were fine poetry. He rejoices at the sound of our first gospel words. He teaches us with perfect love. No achievement in this life, important as it may be, will be relevant if we lose the language of the gospel in our families. It is my testimony that Heavenly Father will bless us 
in our efforts as we strive to embrace his language, even until we become fluent in this higher level of communication, which always was our mother tongue. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Many years ago, President David O. McKay told of a beautiful experience he had while sailing on a boat towards Samoa. After falling asleep, he beheld in vision something infinitely sublime. In the distance, he said, I beheld a beautiful white city. Trees with luscious fruit and flowers in perfect bloom abounded everywhere. A great concourse of people was approaching the city. Each one wore a white flowing robe. Instantly, my attention centered upon their leader, and though I could see only the profile of his features, I recognized him at once as my Savior. The radiance of his countenance was glorious. The peace about him was divine. President McKay continues, The city was his, the city eternal, and the people following him were to abide there in peace and eternal happiness. President McKay wondered, Who are they? Who are these people? He explains what happened next. As if the Savior read my thoughts, he answered by pointing to words in a semicircle that appeared above the people, written in gold. These are they who have overcome the world, who have truly been born again. For decades I have remembered the words, These are they who have overcome the world. The blessings that the Lord has promised to those who overcome the world are breathtaking. They will be clothed in white and named in the book of life. The Lord will confess their names before the Father and before His angels. Each shall have part in the first resurrection, receive eternal life, and go no more out from the presence of God. Is it possible to overcome the world and receive these blessings? Yes, it is. Those who overcome the world develop an all-encompassing love for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His divine birth, His perfect life, His infinite atonement at Gethsemane and Golgotha assure the resurrection of each of us. And with our sincere repentance, He alone is able to cleanse us from our sins, allowing us to return to the presence of God. We love Him because He first loved us. Jesus said, Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Later he added, I will that ye should overcome the world. Overcoming the world is not one defining moment in a lifetime, but a lifetime of moments that define an eternity. It can begin as a child learns to pray and reverently sings, I'm trying to be like Jesus. It continues as a person studies the life of the Savior in the New Testament and ponders the power of the Savior's atonement in the Book of Mormon. Praying, repenting, 
following the Savior, and receiving His grace lead us to better understand why we are here and who we are to become. Alma described it this way, A mighty change is wrought in their hearts, and they humble themselves and put their trust in the true and living God, remaining faithful until the end. Those overcoming the world know that they will be accountable to their Heavenly Father. Sincerely changing and repenting of sins is no longer restraining, but liberating as sins of scarlet become white as snow. Those of the world have difficulty with accountability to God. Like a child who parties in his parents' home while they are out of town, enjoying the ruckus, refusing to think about the consequences when the parents return 24 hours later. The world is more interested in indulging the natural man than in subduing him. Overcoming the world is not a global invasion, but a private, personal battle requiring hand-to-hand combat with our own internal foes. Overcoming the world means treasuring the greatest commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis described it this way, Christ says, Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. Overcoming the world is keeping our promises to God, our baptismal and temple covenants, and our oath of faithfulness to our eternal companion. Overcoming the world leads us humbly to the sacrament table each week, asking for forgiveness and pledging to remember Him and keep His commandments that we may always have His Spirit to be with us. Our love for the Sabbath day does not end when the chapel doors close behind us, but instead opens the doors to a beautiful day of resting from routine tasks, studying, praying, and reaching out to families and others who need our attention. Instead of breathing a sigh of relief when church is over and frantically running in search of a television before the football game begins, Let our focus remain on the Savior and upon His holy day. The world is incessantly pulled by a flood of enticing and seductive voices. Overcoming the world is trusting in the one voice that warns, comforts, enlightens, and brings peace, not as the world giveth. Overcoming the world means turning ourselves outward, remembering the second commandment, He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. The happiness of our spouse is more important than our own pleasure. Helping our children to love God and keep His commandments is a primary priority. We willingly share our material blessings through tithing, fast offerings, and giving to those in need. And as our spiritual antennas are pointed heavenward, the Lord guides us to those we can help. The world builds its universe around itself, 
proudly proclaiming, Look at me compared to my neighbor. Look at what is mine. See how important I am. The world is easily irritated, disinterested, demanding, loving the cheers of the crowd, while overcoming the world brings humility, empathy, patience, and compassion for those different than yourself. Overcoming the world will always mean that we will have some beliefs that are ridiculed by the world. The Savior said, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. President Russell M. Nelson said this morning, True disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to stand out, speak up, and be different from people of the world. A disciple of Christ is not alarmed if a post about her faith does not receive 1,000 likes or even a few friendly emojis. (laughs) Overcoming the world is being less concerned with our online connections and more concerned with our heavenly connection to God. The Lord gives us safety as we heed the guidance from His living prophets and apostles. President Thomas S. Monson has said, The world can be challenging. As we go to the temple, we will be more able to bear every trial and to overcome each temptation. We will be renewed and fortified. With increasing temptations, distractions, and distortions, the world attempts to beguile the faithful into dismissing the rich spiritual experiences of one's past, redefining them as foolish deceptions. Overcoming the world is remembering, even when we are discouraged, the times we have felt the love and light of the Savior. Elder Neal A. Maxwell explained one of these experiences this way, I had been blessed, and I knew that God knew that I knew I had been blessed. Although we may temporarily feel forgotten, we do not forget. Overcoming the world does not mean we live a cloistered life, protected from the unfairness and difficulties of mortality. Rather, it opens the more expansive view of faith, drawing us to the Savior and His promises. While perfection is not complete in this life, overcoming the world keeps our hope aflame that one day we shall stand before our Redeemer and see His face with pleasure and hear His voice, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. On December 28th of this past year, our dear friend and beloved General Authority, Elder Bruce D. Porter, completed his mortality. He was 64 years old. I first met Bruce when we were students at Brigham Young University. He was one of the best and the brightest. After receiving his doctoral degree from Harvard University emphasizing Russian affairs, Bruce's thinking and writing brought prominence that could have derailed him. But the wealth and praise of the world never clouded his view. 
His loyalty was to his Savior, Jesus Christ, to his eternal companion, Susan, to his children and grandchildren. Bruce was born with a kidney defect. He had surgery, but over time his kidneys continued to decline. Shortly after Bruce's call as a general authority in 1995, we served together with our families in Frankfurt, Germany, where his work centered in Russia and Eastern Europe. Life for Elder Porter changed dramatically in 1997 when his kidney function and health began to fail. The Porter family returned to Salt Lake City. During his 22 years of service in the 70, Bruce was hospitalized numerous times, including for 10 surgeries. Doctors told Susan on two occasions that Bruce would not live through the night but he did. Bruce was on dialysis to clean his blood for more than 12 years of his service as a general authority. For much of that time, the dialysis consumed five evenings a week for four hours each treatment so that he could serve in his calling during the day and accept conference assignments on the weekends. When his health did not improve after several priesthood blessings, Bruce was puzzled, but he knew in whom he trusted. In 2010, Bruce received a kidney from his son David. This time, his body did not reject the transplant. It was a miracle, bringing renewed health and eventually allowing him and Susan to return to their beloved Russia with him in the area presidency. On December 26th of last year, after fighting continuous infections in the hospital in Salt Lake City, he asked the doctors to leave the room. Bruce told Susan that he knew through the Spirit that there was nothing the doctors could do that would save his life. He knew that Heavenly Father would take him home. He was filled with peace. On December 28th, Bruce returned to his family home. A few hours later, surrounded by loved ones, he peacefully returned to his heavenly home. Years ago, Bruce Porter wrote these words to his children. The testimony I have of the reality and love of Jesus Christ has been the compass of my life. It is a pure, burning witness of the Spirit that he lives that he is my Redeemer and friend in every time of need. Our challenge is to come to know the Savior and through faith in Him to overcome the trials and temptations of this world. Let us be faithful and true, always trusting in Him." End of quote. Bruce Douglas Porter overcame the world. May we each try a little harder in our efforts to overcome the world, not excusing serious offenses, yet being patient with minor slips and falls, eagerly hastening our speed, and generously helping others. As you trust more fully in the Savior, I promise you blessings of greater peace in this life 
and a greater assurance of your eternal destiny. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We are deeply grateful for all who have spoken to us this afternoon and for the beautiful music that has been provided. We remind the brethren of the General Priesthood Meeting, which will commence in the Conference Center this evening at 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The nationwide Mormon Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be tomorrow morning from 9.30 to 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The Sunday morning session of conference will immediately follow. The concluding speaker for this session will be Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing a child's prayer. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Hugo Montoya of the seventy. My brothers and sisters, it is now my assignment to speak to you, and your assignment is to listen. <laughs> my goal is to finish my assignment before you finish yours. <laughs> I'll do my best. Over the years, I've observed that those who accomplish the most in this world are those with a vision for their lives, with goals to keep them focused on their vision and tactical plans for how to achieve them. Knowing where you're going and how you expect to get there can bring meaning, purpose, and accomplishment to life. Some have difficulty differentiating between a goal and a plan until they learn that a goal is a destination or an end, while a plan is the route by which you get there. For example, we can have a goal to drive to a certain unfamiliar location. And as some of you dear sisters know, we men think we know how to get there, often resulting in our saying, I know it must be just around the next corner. My wife must be smiling. <laughs> the goal was clear, but there wasn't a good plan in place to reach the destination. Goal setting is essentially beginning with the end in mind, and planning is devising a way to get to that end. A key to happiness lies in understanding what destinations truly matter, and then spending our time, effort, and attention on the things that constitute a sure way to arrive there. God, our Heavenly Father, has given us the perfect example of goal-setting and planning. His goal is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, and His means to achieve it is the plan of salvation. Our beloved Heavenly Father's plan includes giving us a growing, stretching, learning, physical mortality through which we can become more like Him, clothing our eternal spirits 
in physical bodies, living by teachings and commandments of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and forming eternal families, allows us, through the Savior's Atonement, to fulfill God's goal of immortality and eternal life for His children with Him in His celestial kingdom. Wise goal-setting includes the understanding that short-term goals only are effective if they lead to clearly understood longer-term goals. I believe that one important key to happiness is to learn how to set our own goals and establish our own plans within the framework of our Heavenly Father's eternal plan. If we focus on this eternal path, we will inevitably qualify to return to His presence. It is good to have goals and plans for our careers, for our education, even for our golf game. It is also important to have goals for our marriages, our families, our church councils, and callings. And this is especially true for our missionaries. But our greatest and most overriding goals should fit into Heavenly Father's eternal plan. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Experts on goal setting tell us that the simpler and more straightforward a goal is, the more power it will have. When we can reduce a goal to one clear image or one or two powerful and symbolic words, that goal can then become part of us and guide virtually everything we think and do. I believe there are two words that in this context symbolize God's goals for us and our most important goals for ourselves. The words are, Return and receive. To return to His presence and to receive the eternal blessings that come from making and keeping covenants are the most important goals we can set. We return and receive by having unshaken faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, relying wholly upon His merits, pressing forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men and women, feasting upon the words of Christ and enduring to the end. Lucifer did not accept our Father's plan that allowed us to return to His presence and receive His blessings. In fact, he rebelled and attempted to completely modify our Father's plan, wanting to take the glory, honor, and power of God to Himself. As a result, He was cast out with His minions from God's presence and became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and women and to lead them captive at His will even as many as would not hearken unto the Lord's voice. Because of his premortal choices, Satan can neither return 
nor receive. The only thing left for him is to oppose the Father's plan by using every possible enticement and temptation to bring us down and make us miserable like unto himself. Satan's plan to accomplish his diabolical goal applies to every individual, generation, culture, and society. He uses loud voices, voices that seek to drown out the small and still voice of the Holy Spirit that can show us all things we should do to return and receive. These voices belong to those who disregard gospel truth and who use the Internet, social and print media, radio, television, and movies to present an enticing way immortality, immorality, I should say, immorality, violence, ugly language, filth, and sleaze in a way that distracts us from our goals and the plans we have for eternity. These voices may also include well-intentioned individuals who are blinded by the secular philosophies of men and women and who seek to destroy the faith and divert the eternal focus of those who are simply trying to return to the presence of God and receive all that our Father hath. I've found that to stay focused on returning and receiving the promised blessings, I need to regularly take time to ask myself, how am I doing? It's kind of like having a personal private interview with yourself. If that sounds unusual, think about it. Who in this world knows you better than you know yourself? You know your thoughts, your private actions, your desires, and your dreams, goals, and plans. And you know better than anyone how you are progressing along the road to returning and receiving. As a guide for me during this private personal review, I like to read and ponder the introspective words found in the fifth chapter of Alma, wherein Alma asks, Have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Alma's questions are a reminder of what our goals and plans ought to include in order to return and receive. Remember the Savior's invitation to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. As we increase our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ's power to give rest unto our souls by forgiving sins, redeeming imperfect relationships, healing the spiritual wounds that stifle growth, and strengthening and enabling us to develop the attributes of Christ, we will more deeply appreciate the magnitude of the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
During the coming weeks, find time to review your life's goals and your plans and make sure they align with our Heavenly Father's great plan for our happiness. If you need to repent and change, then consider doing so now. Take the time to prayerfully think about what adjustments are needed to help you keep your eye single to the glory of God. We must keep the doctrine and gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of our goals and plans. Without Him, no eternal goal is possible, and our plans to achieve our eternal goals will surely fail. One additional help is the living Christ, the testimony of the Apostles, which was presented to the Church on January 1st, 2000. Place a copy where you can see it and take time to review each of the statements found in this inspired testimony of Christ by His special witnesses who signed it. I would urge you to study it along with the family, a proclamation to the world. We speak often about the family proclamation, but please remember to read it in the light of the saving power of the living Christ. Without the living Christ, our fondest expectations will be unfulfilled. As the family proclamation states, the divine plan of happiness enables families relationships to be perpetuated beyond the grave. Sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples make it possible for individuals to return to the presence of God and for families to be united eternally. This can happen only because the living Christ is the atoning Savior and Redeemer of the world. In this regard, you may also consider searching the scriptures to expand your understanding of the specific truths found in the living Christ. Prayerfully reading the living Christ is like reading the testimonies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the prophets of the Book of Mormon will increase your faith in the Savior and help you stay focused on Him as you follow your plans to reach your eternal goals. Despite our mistakes, shortcomings, detours, and sins, Jesus Christ's Atonement allows us to repent, prepared to return and receive the matchless blessings God has promised to live forever with the Father and the Son in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Now, as you all know, no one will escape death. Therefore, our long-term goal and plans should be when we return to our Heavenly Father, we will receive all that He has planned for each one of us. I testify there is no greater goal in mortality than to live eternally with our heavenly parents and our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is more than just our goal. It is also their goal. They have a perfect love for us. 
more powerful than we can even begin to comprehend. They are totally, completely, eternally aligned with us. We are their work. Our glory is their glory. More than anything else, they want us to come home to return and receive eternal happiness in their presence. My dear brothers and sisters, in one week we will celebrate Palm Sunday, commemorating Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. In two weeks we will celebrate Easter Sunday, commemorating the Savior's triumph over death. As we focus our attention on the Savior during these two special Sundays, let us remember Him and renew our lifelong commitment to keeping His commandments. Let us look deeply into our own lives, setting our own goals, and focusing our plans to align with God's in a way that will ultimately lead us toward our precious privilege to return and receive, which is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Dear Heavenly Father, we are very grateful for this session of this conference. We thank Thee for the music and for this special song. We know that Thou art there and listen our prayers. We pray for President Thomas Monson. We love him. We are very grateful for the great service of the people, the men and the women that they were released today. And we ask the blessings for the men and the leaders that they were called today. We pray for thy children that they are suffering afflictions in this moment. Some of them for due to natural disasters, their homes are destroyed. And some others are in living in the middle of the spiritual storms. They are thy children. We are the brothers and sisters of them. Please change change our heart so we can help them in their afflictions. We love thee, Father, and we love thy Son. We want to be obedient as thy beloved Son is obedient. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session was provided by a family choir comprised of members from stakes in Tremonton, Garland, and Fielding, Utah. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. <laughs>